Welcome to Lydia Finette's Claim Your Confidence, a podcast that will introduce you to the most powerful women in the world as they talk about their own confidence journey. No matter what obstacles you face, Claim Your Confidence will inspire you, motivate you, and give you a roadmap to live the life you want. So, are you ready to claim your confidence? Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. I am podcasting out of my amazing studio in Rockefeller Center. And seated across from me, I have such an incredible woman. Katie Keim is the kind of woman whose wallpaper you have definitely seen. I'm obsessed with it. I walked into someone's home once and realized when I thought I was looking at a traditional toile, I was actually looking at images of New York City, which is, as you all know, my greatest love. So we are going to hear all about how Katie built her empire right after a word from our sponsors. Welcome back to Claim Your Confidence. I'm here today with Katie Keim, the founder and CEO of the Katie Keim Print-Based Design Studio. Katie Keim is a total vibe. There is no other way to say it. I'm borrowing that word from my 11-year-old. I'm not even sure that I used it correctly. But if you've ever seen a bright, fabulous print with something that looks a little bit out there, it's probably something Katie's created. Katie, welcome to Claim Your Confidence. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Now, Katie, you're a fellow Southerner. I am. North Carolina. North Carolina. Where in North Carolina? I was raised um, west of Asheville in the tiny little mountain town, born in Greensboro, but most of my life was in the mountains. And what was it like growing up there? You know, I was just talking to my husband about this recently. It was weirdly idyllic. I mean, rural Appalachia is not what most people think of as, as idyllic, but the community, the outdoors and sports were made for a feeling growing up that I really would not trade. And I know that you have a lot of kids in your own home, which we'll get to later, (laughs) but how many siblings did you have? I have biological siblings, a brother and a sister. And then we had two boys. My mom was a high school principal, a middle school principal. And we had two boys that lived with us for a while. So I went from being the youngest of five at times to then the only child with my mom at times once they left the house. So I kind of I think it's why I'm a little peculiar. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so were they all boys who lived there as well? No, three boys and then a sister. So two girls, three boys. That's amazing. It must have been an interesting childhood. It was very interesting. (laughs) Nonstop, I would think. Nonstop. Throughout it all, were you always creative? I really was. Back to my mom being a principal, I would take the bus to her school. And some of my earliest memories were going to the art room and the art teacher there would teach me how to make pottery or teach me how to do various things while I waited for my mom to be done. And I do have just really, really early memories of always trying to make something. And did you just love it from the minute you started? Mm -hmm. Could never get enough. It's so funny. I have to say I have not a creative bone in my body when it comes to art. And every time I've ever seen anyone who is good at it, it's like there's something about the way they pick up a brush and can create a flower. And I'll just stare at that brush and be like, I have absolutely <laughs> no idea how you did that. Yeah. <laughs> so was it always painting? Was it drawing? What was the medium? It was always a mixed medium. And I actually see a thread even in the business in that regard. But drawing, painting, pottery, In college, I studied more of this, got into screen printing photography. I really instill today any medium I can learn. I mean, my dream is to have like just a guy who like helps me figure out welding and sculptures. I mean, I I just want to keep going. Just keep going and going. Yeah, but I have a job for now. (laughs) One day a welder. One day day a welder. for welding. (laughs) So when you were in high school, you played basketball. Is that correct? I did. I actually played basketball and volleyball and ran track, but basketball was like my, my love. 
I love it. And so how long did you play? You're not as tall as I am. I'm part giant. I'm like 5'11". But... <laughs> um, no, I'm only 5'8". So yeah. what, what did you play? In I was a point guard and I started really young and I just fell in love with it by nine. And by nine, the high school coach, again, in this small, tiny town had kind of taken me under his wing. He let me manage the basketball team and then start practicing with the varsity when I was in sixth grade. And so it really became from family chaos. It did become a saving grace a little bit and performance and outlets like creativity and sports just were and have always been just my favorite what you're looking to do. (laughs) And so you played basketball in college. You said that right before we got on the interview. So I was recruited to play. I was recruited to play quite a few schools, the best being a D1 school. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, very much by junior year was like, do I go do the basketball thing or do I kind of hang up my jersey? And I decided on the latter. And then I went to Duke where I got to pull for the basketball team, but not play basketball. So. That's so amazing. So what was that journey like for you? So, I mean, team sports are amazing. And honestly, it gets addictive when mm-hmm. you start winning, right? Yeah. Especially if you're on a winning team and you're doing really well. And then to get selected, like yeah. you're the best of the best and come to this college. What was that like as a confident child? Did it feel like it was part of what was building you up or was it something that you were struggling with at that time? I feel like I had a good amount of confidence. I would actually say early on, I was just more Mm self-assured, always had a pretty strong will. I think sports truly gave me confidence. It was like the first thing that, you know, started playing varsity as a freshman. So even confidence around people almost four years older than me, you know, then that dynamic, taking a court, leading very much was like the first main confidence builder of my life. And a lot of lessons taught through winning and losing. Absolutely. Winning, losing, practice, teamwork. You know, we were taught on time is 15 minutes early, all those yeah. kinds of things. Yeah. Um, on time is 15 minutes early. Yeah, I mean, oh, mom, are you listening to this? Oh my gosh, my mom is British and she will be like clapping as she hears you say that. On time. Are you still like that today? You know, I've gotten, I feel like I'm like sliding. I used to be very much that way. And now I get to my meetings like one minute before or one minute after and I'm like, Katie, you're you're slipping. <laughs> so. I feel exactly the same way. I was thinking this last night. I used to be hyper early for things, like same. criminally like, like early. Weirdly early. Yes, like 20 minutes before mm-hmm. and then I'd be waiting and if someone was one minute late, I would be like, it's so rude. How can they be so rude? <laughs> I think COVID actually played a part in that. Interesting. I don't know why. I, was I, have, I am night. really like something's changed where I'm a little bit more like that. I never have been. Me too. So yeah. Very interesting. We'll mm-hmm. have to dive into yeah. that in another <laughs> podcast called Why Are We Later Now? <laughs> but it also gives me, it, it's better for my friends because I now give them grace, whereas I used to be really Absolute hard-nosed same. about it. So, so true. Yeah. Okay. Well, that makes me feel better. <laughs> podcast is going so well already. So after you get to college and you're not playing sports, are you still doing a lot of art while you're in college? Yes. Okay. Um, I double majored and one of my majors was visual arts. And I really did that one as I, I did not see ever going into this really as a career. I just didn't think it was viable. I thought that I would have to do something a little more practical. So my visual arts major was just kind of like a side, like this will give me that outlet. But then it just kind of never went away. And um, by senior year, I was like, oh, I think maybe I'm going to try to to do this. Because I read somewhere you were doing a lot of trunk shows, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Leading up to it, I was doing a lot of kind of one-off projects. Mm-hmm. And by senior year, this very instrumental person in my career, which was Coach K's daughter, Debbie Krzyzewski Severino. Uh-huh. I'd been making a lot of things for her. And she said, I, as your, you know, kind of senior gift, want to give you, just host a trunk show for you. I'm going to bring my friends, you bring your friends. And that was really where it kind of clicked. Is what happened. 
So you're, you know, in Durham, North Carolina. And so it's not like you have access to the fab, you know, the garment district. Yeah. I mean, you're just making whatever you can make. So I went to Goodwill, recovered a dresser, changed the hardware. I had a large printer in my apartment because I had taken an, enough kind of around printing. So I was making stationary sets. So anything I could make within an apartment in Durham, I created as a collection. So different products, but all that seemed to fit together. Mm-hmm. And so when I did the trunk show, because everyone I had all these, you know, various materials, various products, but it clicked for everyone that they all went together. Mm-hmm. And it was so well received that after I just thought, I'm going to go try to learn how to really make things and mass produce them and scale and do lifestyle brand. And this was in college you decided to do it. I feel like most people, it takes them 20 years and all of a sudden they're like, now I need to scale this business. Well, I always say there's a fine line between courage and stupidity. And I'm not <laughs> sure, you never know which one you're coming down on. Because I had so many people like say, you should go to New York and you should go, you know, you really have to go learn this industry yeah. and then you can start a business. And and I don't think that's bad advice. It just wasn't the advice I took. <laughs> so what did you do? What was the next step? So I moved to Atlanta for a couple of years where there was, you know, more of a market for learning these things. I apprenticed under an upholsterer. I learned how to sew. I worked part-time for an e-commerce photographer. Mm -hmm. So I, okay, this is how you would shoot a product and Mm -hmm. put it on a website. I worked for an interior design firm, learning a bit about the interiors world. And I was all this time doing, you know, custom wedding, stationery, custom bridesmaids dresses. The moneymaker was kind of on the side, side hustle. Mm-hmm. But it was really like learning, how do you learn all these industries in the crash course? And then I moved on to, okay, the business plan part, how do you do that? Yeah. And eventually put them all together and started doing true trunk shows where I was like making some, you know, actual money and making some cooler stuff. Moved to Austin and then launched Katie Kime in 2013. And here we are. And here <laughs> We're we still are. Here. So take me back to when you're learning how to do all this. Was it always that it was going to be a collection? It was never going to be one product? Because I mm-hmm. have heard from people that the idea of going out with a broad swath of things is not always the best no, thing. Absolutely. So what would you say about that? I would say I was so passionate, truly, about bringing fashion and home together. Mm-hmm. Like I knew I did not want to do just one of those. And if you said you can make this much money just making this, I it just was not what I wanted. And I felt like no one had done it really well. You know, there was the all these people that I love, like Tory Burch, Kate Spade, you had Jonathan Adler. I mean, really only Ralph, because he's Ralph, has yeah. brought the whole world of something together. Yeah. So I would say that probably not doing it that way is best. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe try one thing. For me, it just was, I knew it was the path for me. So what did it start out as? Started out as a lot of furniture mm-hmm. and going in, buying and recovering or buying and spray painting and then having an upholster kind of take traditional French frames, Mm -hmm. but like a bright white or bright pink to make them kind of stand out and be very different. So it started out as a lot of furniture and a lot of custom dresses. And who was buying it at that point? I mean, probably my friends who felt bad for me. (laughs) Like my friends whose houses are literally covered in Katie Kai, my mom. (laughs) No, my aesthetic, I do feel like was always well received. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't scalable or, you know, commercial enough. So it would be hosting a trunk show in Atlanta, Austin. I came to New York and had one on the Upper East Side. Of course, you don't think about how small things are here. So we're taking hinges, off, like doors off the hinges. Oh, totally, like cutting things to move in half in to get them in. Couch so, doctor, anyone in New York know that? Yeah, exactly. So whoever I could get in front of mostly was receiving it pretty well and buying things, but it just wasn't scalable. Yeah. And so after the trunk show world, and it was like, I'm going to move online. I was still doing a lot of furniture, 
some custom dresses, had moved into, you know, wall art, some stationery, but the scalability started to come into it. So that's when the wallpaper and this print thing really started to say, this is more scalable than giant chairs. <laughs> were you blogging at this time? How were you getting the word out? I was blogging. I was creating my own emails. I feel like I was kind of early to like this email world. Yeah. I didn't have a MailChimp or anything like that, but I was just making really beautiful emails and inserting the graphic into the body and yeah. then sending it out. I was pretty early to Instagram. Yeah. Um, I feel like people say now it was really the gate. I mean, I was it was pretty like a early. game changer yeah. for some people. Yeah, absolutely. So a lot of that. And then, I, I mean, I have always been a hustler yeah. and... I hustled and I'm still, I'm still hustling. Yes, like, of let's course. be clear. Of course. <laughs> it's not going away anytime soon as far as, you know, it's never like you arrive. Yeah. So, Because what does it take to maintain that business, especially in a market that is increasingly crowded, I'm sure? So I think something that's not spoken about enough or not maybe in like the smaller type of company is the fundraising and how do you fund it? And if you, you can either, you know, slowly make a decent living and sell this much online and have maybe one employee or two. But I think if you want to scale, which I've always wanted to, there has to be some capital. And both for females and just this industry, there's not a lot of it. So yeah. that's been a big piece of just even that journey. Like early on, I need $30,000 to make these samples to launch online. Where do I get that? Where did um, you get that? I got it from uh, three friends who were two brothers and a sister, like dear friends of mine. And they kind of like shared like a fund together. And so I went to them and said, for a promissory note, can I, you know, would y'all be interested? Because they did some investing together and they did it. They did it. Yeah. And so then did you take on more capital? Eventually I did. I closed it around in the last six to eight months that has really allowed us to set the foundation for the next couple of years and bring on the team that the team that I have right now is, in my opinion, why things are really starting to transform. So it allowed us to bring them on. How did you get the idea for the wallpaper, which I think most people really, it's not that you're known for it, but I feel like it's so easily identifiable, yeah. which is the twall pattern. Right. Tell us about how that came and tell everyone who is listening who may not know, but will now realize what they're looking at what the twall? next time they see it. Yeah, so twall, T-O-I-L-E mm -hmm. is... So interestingly, people think it started in France. It actually started in Ireland. Oh, now but I know. But <laughs> when it came to France, like right outside of Versailles, we're going to go with that, <laughs> is where there were like hundreds of these different toile patterns that started to emerge. And so I have no idea like where I fell in love with this French toile. I know I was 18 or 19. It was early. It's yeah. just that traditional black and white. It's like little girls playing in a... It's like a bucolic scene. Yeah, <laughs> like playing in a field. Yeah. And I have always loved contrast. And for whatever reason, I just always loved it. And so then... Um, I saw someone in Domino Magazine, I saw like a modern take in college mm -hmm. and it was so cool to me. It was like, I think it was, I think it might've been Sheila Bridges Harlem mm -hmm. twall. And it was like such a statement she was making. It was, it was incredible. And I'd never seen someone do a modern take. So, I mean, fast forward eight to 10 years, we had become known for prints. Our banana leaves, our oyster print really had kind of put us on the map. The mums. Which I have in my bathroom, by the way. <laughs> this was so fortuitous. I told her when she came in. Yeah. That was truly like, the, those were the top three. And so then was like, okay, what's the next big print? I was like, well, what if we tried to do some modern twalls, Austin, Nashville, these cities that like are kind of obsessed with themselves. So we spent like a year and a half. <laughs> that are obsessed with themselves. They are. They are. Um, we can you do the list one more time? Austin, Nashville, and New York City. New York City, exactly. I mean, if you look on our website, it's strategic. Yes, I mean, it's of not, course. You know. People love being from there. That's exactly. so true. So we spent like a year and a half in development because the artwork is so 
it's so nuanced in twall. It's, yeah. You can't, it's not like you just draw, you know, the MoMA. Right. It's a certain treatment, certain hand. And so finding the artist and then finding enough artists that could all make them look the same, like we're still dealing with that. So we launched it with, I think, Nashville, Austin, and New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And then came the Marfa Trois, which everyone just kind of lost over. their minds yeah. over. <laughs> and then it's kept going and we're still, we're still making it. And so to answer the wallpaper question, the furniture was there early all these other products, a lot of times I would have people say, I don't really know what you do. Do you make this or do you make that? Like yeah. I thought you made, and the one thread that ran through all of them was print. Mm. And I was manufacturing some wallpaper elsewhere. That print would always be on these same things. And so we said, you know, let's let furniture go and really push into this wallpaper thing and this print thing. Yeah. And so then we started bringing the wallpaper printing in-house. So now we do all of that in-house. We have giant machines that are running and cutters. And I don't know. Yeah, it, it did become kind of this canvas that you could put print on in, in an amazing way. And I think for people, it's like in your bathroom, you can have like this boldness mm -hmm. in a smaller room. It doesn't have to take over. You're not going to put it all over the living room. Yeah. And so I think it's almost a way for people also to kind of play with confidence or boldness. Yeah. That's really been like such a gift. Yeah. And it's so fun because it really changes up the dynamic. Mm. I would say that most of my apartment is pretty calm. Right. And then the artwork is what makes it pop. But the bathroom is the same feeling. It's yeah. like if you open the door to that, the immediate reaction is, oh, nobody's like, oh, no, that's not. It is literally a statement, which yeah. is really fun to be able to make. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about when you've started this business. I love the failure story. So <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there must be some, some oh, spectacular yeah. ones. And this is really to embolden the entrepreneur who is having a bad day and is listening Absolutely. to this right now, who isn't able to scale their business yet, but wants to do it. Give us something really good and yeah. juicy. Well, first I can say what I just kind of alluded to, which is I'm not selling any of the products currently that I started out selling. <laughs> so, I like to think I about mean, it as an evolution, by the yeah, way. Yeah. That's, a, that's a euphemism a bit. So, I mean, you know, I pivoted and pivoted and pivoted. Oh, that doesn't work. Or it works for three people, not 300,000 people, you know. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that piece. Hiring has been a real journey. <laughs> Pre-COVID or after no, COVID? The whole, or just the whole thing. The whole just, time. I would say... I made some mistakes on how early I thought we needed certain positions. Mm -hmm. We weren't ready, but I tried to bring those people on anyway. Mm. So it was like a tiny company with a big person because I thought that big person would make this tiny company bigger. Wildly expensive mistake. Oh. And I did that more than once. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, truly, it was very well intended. I thought that that's, you know, I'm not an operator. I kept yeah. thinking like, I'm this creative that needs an operator that's done this in the industry. And so I tried bringing one from New York. And again, everyone with good intentions, just my miss on the timing and the stage of the business. So that one, let's see, product, I made some <laughs> financial. Another with money, I mean, I think, you know, you'd think that we'd all learn, yeah. even if you're not an entrepreneur, yes. that there's always less money than you think there is. Yes. Like, how is it that we all, and I'm sure people listening are like, well, that's not all of us, but I think it's all of us. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, even just budget, you know, realizing just what the budgeting piece needs, the rigor that it's that's needed, mm -hmm. um, and making that a priority instead of just all the fun, pretty stuff. Yeah. You know, I had to learn that some of the hard way. I mean, I was always aware of it, but but just to the extent. Yes. Now I have this amazing head of finance, VP of finance. It's just 
makes me wonder how I ever stayed in business before she came. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so. She probably isn't that fun, though. That's probably <laughs> that's the problem with the VP of finance and ability. I'm sure that every person who is good with the finance is like, oh, the other side of that is the creative. But yeah, yeah the VP of finance is never the person that is going to be the most fun, but definitely a critical part of business yeah. for sure. Yeah, she surprised you. But yeah, her mind and mine are very different. Yes, which yeah. I think you need. Yeah, I've always said sure. you should hire for the things that in a way you that slow you down. Absolutely. You know, I started a business in May and one of the things that I learned over, I ran nine teams at Christie's over 24 years and I really learned wow. towards the end of my of my time there that the most important thing was to hire people who were good at the things that really took energy from what mm-hmm. I could do because I can come up with a million ideas. I can make those ideas for, I can make them move forward. But if you want me to put that on an Excel spreadsheet, right. it will take me 20 right. days because I will resist it so badly. Absolutely. And the thing that I've learned with this new amazing team that, again, I had a lot of failure to find is that there are people out there that they love doing That's that. That's their you passion. Know? And, it's, and it's not just Absolutely. Excel spreadsheets. It's like the weirdest things about a company. Yes. There are people that, it, and they've helped me relinquish some of the control by being like, no, we love this part that you hate, that you think you have to do because that's been so exciting, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting because when I was joking about the evolution, I do think it is interesting that a lot of people see failure as failure, stop, I'm done. I can't do it anymore. And I think the most successful people, certainly the most successful people who've been on this podcast are the people who look at it the way that you just described it and the way that I feel that it is, at the end of the day, you're constantly shedding things that don't serve you anymore. In business, in entrepreneurship, it's probably the most important thing. You're not holding on to things that don't work because ultimately that will slow you down and that will take a lot of energy as you try to figure out how to put a square peg in a round hole, which by the way, will never fit. (laughs) And that's the key to the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. I don't fear failure a lot. I just think it's a part of it. You You just know that it is. And so it's never scared me a lot. So you were telling me before as well that you have an interesting family dynamic. Yes. You are you have three children that are not biologically yours mm-hmm. and then you have a young child yes. who is. So tell me a little bit about running a company when you have so many different personalities in yes. your house. <laughs> yeah, so I have, I have 18, 16, almost 13. Actually, she's 16 tomorrow, almost 13 and then 16 months. And so our family and our household is never a dull moment. (laughs) And then yes, a growing company, a growing team, we're almost up to 30. And I do feel increasingly that there is demand on both sides. That's at times overwhelming. And I've spoken with a lot of women about this. This is not a unique thought, but there are a lot of days where it doesn't feel like you're great at either. Yes. You know, but it's like, if it's good enough (laughs) for now, sometimes that's all we can do. One big Um, tail. We don't need both of them today. Um, It's interesting. I do think I have a little bit of different personalities at work versus home. Interesting. They're not always the same. In what way? It's funny. I was talking to some people on my team and they were talking about my directness. And they're like, you know, we kind of sometimes want you to be more direct. Like you kind of, we always know that you know exactly what you want to say, but it sounds like you're a little, yeah. Like a good Southern girl. Exactly. (laughs) And I laughed and I was like, no one in my family, no one in my family thinks that's an issue. Yeah. And so I do, I, I see myself kind of, you know, playing to different strengths and weaknesses based on the environment. I did a test when I was at Christie's called Insights, which I always thought was really interesting, which they basically describe in four different colors. And each color is, if you were to put the CEO, this is a broad brushstrokes, but the CEO of a blue color would be Bill Gates, very analytical, very thoughtful, very, okay. very skilled. Green would be kind of Obama, very 
community-driven, a lot of different ideas all coming together towards a common goal. A yellow would be Richard Branson. So it would be like, you know, I need to put this Ikea thing together, grab some wine, and let's also grab some beer and we're going to have a great time. And like, maybe we'll get this together. Maybe we won't. And then the red was the equivalent of like a Donald Trump, like a very hard, headstrong sort of leads with ownership and doesn't really care about people's opinions and all of those things. One of the most interesting things about that I always found was that you did have different insights based on your home life versus your work life. So you might be more yellow at home and a little bit less red, whereas you might walk into the work and be more red and like a little bit less green or whatever it is. Yeah, I'm really just starting to realize that that's the case for me. I mean, it's like kind of a new realization. And I think both could benefit from a little bit of just more balance, Yeah, you know, coming to the middle. Yeah. So Managing is not an easy thing, no. especially in this day and age where there's so many different things that are going on in the world, which impact the way that people come into work. And yeah. I know when I started working two decades ago, you did not bring your full self to work. So no one really had any idea what was going on. Right. So there's so many things about what's going on in the world. But I do find that I hear that from a lot of people that hiring or creating teams mm-hmm. or even managing teams can be a huge challenge of a business. It is for sure. So out of everything that you've created, what do you love the most? Truly, I probably love the team I've created. And I, I know that's probably not the answer you're looking for. No, it's not on. at all what I heard <laughs> the same I, I move on so quickly from things that I create uh-huh. that are visual. I'm so done with them and ready for the next. Yeah. So it's, it's not like I'm like obsessed with anything I've ever made. It's interesting. But I am very proud of what it's taken to get to the place with this team. And some will come and some will go. It doesn't mean it's set forever. We can create like the sky's the limit. Yeah. So interestingly, like that's one of the things I'm most proud of. Do you have your entire home decorated in Katie Kime or do you okay, use so, other things? So here's a shocker. The cobbler's um, shoe, like, <laughs> that, that whole thing. The no, kid who doesn't it, have it, shoes, his dad's a cobbler. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, it's that my husband is the only, I hope you listen to this, is the only man <laughs> in the world whose wife is in my profession and he does not think that I should then have just carte blanche, you know, kind of that is freedom. Hilarious. So we have a lot of conflict over decor in our house. Oh and so <laughs> we have a guest house and he's laughing because he's like, yeah, you have a whole like separate house. Um, <laughs> we have a guest house that's above our garage and it's two bedrooms and a living room and ample space. And that is where I have taken over and it is mine and I don't care oh, what I anyone love says. It. It's, so like that, it's like your girl so, den. Exactly. So that den. one really is like, it's New York trawl everywhere. It's bright colors. Oh, I it's, um, it. I literally paint on the walls. So that's the full expression that I have. But our main house is a lot wider than you'd expect. <laughs> what happens in the two bedroom guest house? Is this the party house? So it's funny. We do a lot of meetings there because uh-huh. it's got a big open space. So my team, our main office is connected to our warehouse. So we have 9,000 square feet. Wow. But half of it's industrial. It's so great. But I mean, it's, you know, it's not always the most inspiring environment just because we're also overflowing with warehouse, you know, pajamas and all those. So we take a lot of meetings in, uh, we call it the cottage. So my team will come, which is great because we get to just feel more inspired there. Keep a lot of guests. And when they're there, they stay in one of the guest rooms. And then the other one is like a painting studio that just has my canvases and paint everywhere. And so, I mean, I really do have the most amazing space to just be me, but everywhere else is pretty, it's pretty neutral. Do you manufacture everything in the U.S.? We manufacture a lot. Most things that are paper-based, even our ice buckets, loose trays, wallpaper, but then all of our pajamas are done overseas. So when you have this cottage in the back, is it hard to find time where you're not creating? I mean, you must want to run out there all the time. How do you find that line? I feel like the business operations and kind of the team leadership piece of the business has grown so much for me that if anything, I feel like I'm missing time to be creative. So Uh it's almost like 
I'm so happy it's always there because yeah. I mean I can wake up in the middle of the night and be like I'm just gonna go over it. Do you, you do know? that? Yeah, in your sure. pajamas. <laughs> yeah. in your kind of pajamas. You jog <laughs> very meta. The cottage. Yeah. <laughs> You're like this is amazing. I'm wearing my pajamas in my cottage. Yes, I exactly. So what else do you do in Austin? You've moved there. What are your other hobbies? Because obviously you have such an incredible career. But what else do you do when you have a business like this, which I'm sure consumes so much of your time? It does. I do love that the business aspect of content, and even though that's part of the business. It's also a hobby. So yeah. I love photography. I love making stories. I love filming things, even if it's not for work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm doing a journalism program right now to try to learn more about that storytelling aspect. So some of it, some of what I do is in Austin is go to school at night online. Oh, wow. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. That's um, amazing. Yeah, I'm doing a master's program. And when um, did that start? It started about two and a half years ago. Some semesters I'm doing two courses. Yeah. This semester I took off because of Q4. And so then next January, I'll probably start two again. I try to time it with like how demanding work is. But I love Austin. It's such an outdoorsy, amazing town. We're on the lake a lot. We love the water there. All my friends are like fitness fanatics. So I try to, you know, try to keep up. I try to keep up, <laughs> which I really enjoy when I'm doing it. Um, we're big foodies. We eat out a ton and try to, I mean, there's always a new restaurant in Austin. Yeah. So we try to make it. And then we, I mean, travel is a huge passion of our whole families. It has, it's like with our older three, the five of us had this whole era of like traveling the world and we were like in this sweet spot. And now you have a toddler. And now we have a baby. We're like, uh. Oh, it's the hardest time really too tough. on an airplane yeah. because they want to walk up and down the aisle for a hundred hours. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have built in babysitters, which is nice, but it's still like, you know, we don't want to torture her with a 12 hour flight to wherever. So we're figuring out that piece, but we stay pretty busy. And I'm sure those travels have greatly impacted what you've created over the years. Too. Right. I mean, the biggest impact. I mean, travel yeah. is, and it's such a piece that we really try to incorporate even into the storytelling and content, but there's nothing that's ever, other than sports, had a bigger impact on me. I feel like there's so many parts of your life where you show this natural curiosity, even this journalism degree that you're pursuing at night online, in addition to your cottage <laughs> and everything else that's going on with your four children. It just seems like there's so many things that you are curious about. Mm -hmm. What do you see happening next for you? Is it the brand is going to continue evolving? I mean, what happens next for Katie Kime? Well, I appreciate you saying that because I do feel wildly curious and I feel like that's a compliment. So thank you. We are here. I mean, three of my team members are here in New York with me because we are scouting retail concepts, product expansion. So we're planning brick and mortar pop-ups in 24. We have our ideal markets. We'll see if they happen. But one in the summer, one in the holiday season. And then by 25, we would be doing true brick and mortar. So and where will that be, do you think? Are you, um, are you willing think, to say it? <laughs> I mean, certainly. I mean, Austin, what's happening with Austin, even though we are Austin-based, mm -hmm. um, some of the new retail centers and things happening there, we'd love to have like a flagship in Austin. Amazing. But we'd love to do something in East Hampton in the summer. Mm -hmm. Houston and Dallas are massive markets, not just because we're Texans, just they're just massive places. And from there, I think we'd look at like a Charleston or a Nashville, but someone smarter than me will figure this out as it relates to retail strategy. But that's piquing my curiosity and even being here mm -hmm. and the idea that I could get to be as creative as a store display makes my, like blows my mind because what's out there is just crazy and, and amazing endless. and endless. And, and like changing. It's, it's changing. And we walked 10 miles yesterday, yeah. the four of us just going into this, looking at this experience and how do they do this? And we were like, oh, there's so much more digital now, We didn't, but it doesn't, it's not off-putting and you can customize these on site. And so that opens up a world for me that is like a dream. That's amazing. So, How do you continue to grow your social media presence at this point? 
you know, you're in a place, I feel like Instagram is very difficult. Are you on TikTok? Like, what are you doing to get your brand out there and to continue to sell? Yeah, you know, it's like the never ending question, right? Or the ever changing question because the landscape's always changing. So we have found various things, a few different things have worked. Organic and truly like relationships like this, Mm -hmm. um, where you met someone and you're both fans of each other and you both have a following and you promote each other. Yeah has a lot of value. Yes. Because I think that when you're not only nothing against the influencer world, but when someone's not just being paid, I think you're like your following cares who you care about. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're not, you know, always getting a perk. And I think it's the same for us and and everyone else. So we really are pretty bought into like true relationships that we mm-hmm. care about and and cultivating those and cross-promoting one another. Yeah. Um, we're going to relaunch our blog in January, but it will be not your long form kind of normal blog. Mm-hmm. It will be more a almost a hub for where all this content lives. Because it's, if you think about Instagram, TikTok, all these, like that's their platform and they, that's where all the content is. You can't, you know, you're real. You yeah. can't even get off of there. Yes. And so and we're then really, you can't find it again. Exactly. That's the other problem. Because I'm like, oh, I love that recipe. Oh God, where, is, where yeah. did it go? So I can't even remember what it was. Exactly. We're really trying to think of a hub for mm-hmm. content. So it's like, we're making videos that live on our platform yeah. of this blog. And so that's exciting because we do want to do more things like this and talk about more things than just pretty prints, even though those were great. And so I think always expanding that content as well. I was just watching something last night, actually, that was talking about value. Offering value Mm -hmm. is kind of the most successful thing happening on all the platforms right now, value or entertainment. Yeah. And so that's interesting for someone like us because we offer a product mostly. So like, how do we both, you know, keep the true reality that we are a retail company and offer value and entertainment that is for people's lives, not just we want to sell you pajamas or wallpaper. So always evolving in that way too. Always evolving. I mean, I really think that that's the key to it all, isn't it? It's just trying to stay ahead of it or at least be authentic in what you're doing as you make this evolution. Well, Katie, I can't thank you enough for coming to Newsstand Studios today. What are your Instagram, social media handles? Where can we find you entertaining and also inspiring us? Um, Katie, K-A-T-I-E underscore K-I-M-E and then katiekime.com. And that should get you everything. (laughs) That should get you everything into that big flagship store opens in Austin. Well, Katie, thank you for coming in. I would ask everyone who's listening to this podcast to think about curiosity. How are you being curious? What are you exploring? What are you looking for that's new and different? If you're feeling kind of stuck in a rut, that might be a good way to get out of it. So DM Katie, you can DM (laughs) me. We'd love to hear from you. And before I wrap up this podcast, I also want to share some really exciting news. I want to give you guys a teaser for season two. As you guys know, I have two brothers and a really strong father who have had a huge influence over the course of my life, as has my mother and my sister. One thing I know, having grown up with that family dynamic, is that women do not have the corner on insecurity, and we're not the only ones who struggle with confidence. And so I thought it might be fun to mix up season two a little bit and invite one of my really good guy friends to kick off the season in order to talk a little bit about the confidence journey. Season two, which starts at the beginning of February, kicks off with Henrik Lundqvist. He was the goalie for the New York Rangers. He is an incredible man, but in addition to that, 
He was at the top of his game when he found out that his heart condition was never going to allow him to play hockey again. So I have a million questions I want to ask him. I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this, and I cannot wait to introduce a whole new series of guests as we embark on season two of Claim Your Confidence. I'm Lydia Finette. This is New Stand Studios in Rockefeller Plaza. A huge shout out to Tishman's Fire and to my amazing producer, Joe, for making this all work. I hope you guys will tune in again next Tuesday. In the meantime, have a great day. <laughs>